0: It's so good to see you. I'm glad that you are here this morning. Glad you've made it out to the Lord's house on this bright and sunny morning of August. Almost September. I can't believe that is true, but here we are. Uh, School year is upon us, so perhaps you're getting into school routines, and that goes for both uh, students and parents. So uh, getting used to all that again. Maybe you're thankful for it. Uh, Maybe you're thankful that you don't have to uh, entertain your kids for eight hours a day anymore, uh, just for slightly less than that. I don't know. Maybe. I don't want to judge you. Um, But it's good to see you. I'm glad you're here. Uh, It's not often... Uh, just This is some inside baseball as we start uh, the, the sermon this morning. It's not often that I take a lot of time or whatever to consider my sermon title. Um, sometimes it's just something that comes to me throughout the course of my studying and preparing and whatnot. And, and usually I don't even draw your attention to it. But this morning uh, I was quite excited for it. But also because um, I think it's quite... Investing in terms of this title for this sermon, because I think uh, at first talking about dreams and disasters and peanuts and porterhouses, uh, lots of very scatterbrained ideas just in that brief phrase. There doesn't seem like there's a lot connecting them, a lot bringing them together. But what I would say is that that's perfectly okay because I think all of those different themes are drawn together right here in Jeremiah chapter twenty-three. And I was drawn to this particular chapter for two specific reasons, actually two specific verses that really just piqued my interest and uh, made me want to study this whole chapter and figure out what exactly God is saying. The first one comes, of course, in verse number one, where right off the bat, God says this to the shepherds of his people, woe to the shepherds. Who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Then jump down to verse 32. Notice what he says here. He says, Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord. And who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. From the outset, this is clearly one of those eyebrow raising sort of chapters where you go, whoa, something is on God's mind. Indeed, I think if you just read, and we will and will read a lot of these passages and verses, uh, from the outset it's very clear that God has lost seemingly all patience for this bunch of woeful shepherds and wayward prophets. Because actually these shepherds, as we're going to see here in just a second, they've actually failed to do any actual shepherding. To be a shepherd, of course, means you're tending to the flock that has been put under your charge, meaning you're nurturing it, you're leading it to pastures, as it says in Psalm 23, beside still waters, and so it goes. And yet these shepherds, as is revealed by the prophet Jeremiah, of course, speaking on behalf of Yahweh, they showed next to little care for the sheep that were put under their charge. Indeed, you could say that they were uh, the anti-shepherds. Again, notice verses 1 and 2. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. They're actually leading them away from where they should be going. They're actually doing opposite shepherd work. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people. Care sort of said sarcastically. You have scattered my flock and I have driven them away and you have not attended to them behold I will attend to you for your evil deeds declares the lord they have left the flock they were supposed to shepherd unshepherded unattended unwatched for and god rightly is very understandably angry These words that come out through the prophet Jeremiah are words which are laden with grief, but also a seething anger at the idea that these who were responsible, these shepherds of God's people, the responsible ones to nourish and feed God's people, had done nothing of the sort. The stakes are raised, though, in verse number 9, because God calls out the shepherds, These who are supposed to tend for God's people. But then in verse 9, he also turns his attention to the prophets. Notice what he says. Concerning the prophets, my heart is broken within me. All my bones shake. I am like a drunken man, like a man overcome by wine because of the Lord and because of his holy words. This, of course, is Jeremiah sort of confessing his deepest anguish. Such that his heart, as he says here, is reeling. I'm staggering. I'm staggering like a man who is in a drunken stupor. Why? Because I know of the holy words that Yahweh himself has given me to declare. And I know that when I speak them, they're going to go in the ears of some very unholy people. He is staggered, stunned by this awesome assignment he's been given by the Lord. Such that he's reeling, he's trembling, his bones are shaking. Have you ever had to have something to say? You know you need to say it. And it makes you so almost nervous that you start shaking on the insides so that your hands grow cold. Maybe you haven't had that. I've had that before. Indeed, that's what Jeremiah is here. Nervous. A holy Nervousness. Over what he is supposed to say because he knows who his audience is. Look at verse 10. For the land, he says, is full of adulterers. Because of the curse, the land mourns and the pastures of the wilderness are dried up. Their course is evil and their might is not right. God's people by this juncture in history had become like a cheating spouse. They were adulterers in heart and mind and soul. And they were idolaters who were worshiping at the feet of false gods. And they had been led there by this bunch of phony shepherds and lying prophets. And it makes Jeremiah weep. You know, he's known as the weeping prophet. And often we assume it's because he appears very depressed throughout his prophecy. And that is true. But I think he's also weeping because he sees the landscape that's in front of him. He sees it everywhere. And if you want to know exactly what God thinks, he makes that really clear. If you want to know what he thinks about these shepherds and what they've done to his people, notice verse 11. Both priests... And prophet, Yahweh says, are ungodly. Even in my house I have found their evil, declares the Lord. Therefore their way shall be to them like slippery paths in the darkness, into which they shall be driven and fall. For I will bring disaster upon them in the year of their punishment, declares the Lord. In the prophets of Samaria I saw an unsavory thing. They prophesied by Baal and led my people astray. But in the prophets of Jerusalem I have seen a horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen the hands of evildoers so that none, no one turns from his evil. All of them, notice, have become like Sodom to me and its inhabitants like Gomorrah. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts concerning the prophets, Behold, I will feed them with bitter food. And give them poisoned water to drink. For from the prophets of Jerusalem, ungodliness has gone out into all the land. Do you think God is happy? (laughs) Not likely. He makes it very evident what he thinks is going on with his people. In his eyes, the prophets. And the people that they were leading were no better than the, those vile inhabitants of Sodom and Gomorrah who were incinerated by holy he- heavenly fire because of their debauchery and sin and deviance. We should be stunned that God says, My people have become just like that. That's alarming. That's stunning. And God says this because those who were expressly charged with leading the people of God had totally punted on their obligations. So that now they find themselves in the crosshairs of God's wrath. And all they are doing for all of the ways in which they have uh, defaulted on their responsibilities to lead the people of God. They're just reaping disaster as God here says that I will bring disaster upon them in verse 12. And indeed, that's just around the corner. What's just around the corner for God's people are decades of ruin and exile. And according to the word of the Lord, the blame is being placed squarely at the feet of these shepherds and prophets who did nothing to live up to their name, to their title. They were leading God's people astray. Leading away from God's word, from God's truth, from God's calling, from God's holiness. And instead, instead they are just reaping God's wrath. Notice verse 19. Listen to these words, these fierce words of the Lord. Behold, the storm of the Lord. Wrath has gone forth, a whirling tempest. It will burst upon the head of the wicked. The anger of the Lord will not turn back until he has executed and accomplished the intents of his heart the latter days, you will understand it clearly. If it's not obvious already, it should be obvious by now that Jehovah God is a, more than a little exasperated at what he's having to deal with here. Shepherds and prophets, leaders, spiritual leaders of God's people had totally failed in their obligation to lead God's people such that now, Pouring forth out of the lips of the prophet Jeremiah is the pent up anger and frustration and we could even say holy fury for the ways in which they had failed. This is not a knee jerk reaction. This is not just a a spontaneous bout of anger that is pouring forth from God. These are purposeful words, deliberate words, words which I would even say that God took no delight in delivering, but he does so because his patience had been tested and tested for century after century. And yet, and yet after all of those times that he had given them a prophet to turn them back, to bring them back into the fold, what did they do? They kept pushing him away, kept stiff arming his love Kept stiff-arming his mercy. Such that now God has no other choice. But to bring upon them this storm of his wrath. This whirling tempest of anger and frustration. Because God's people were being led. Not by God's word. Not by God's truth. But by the phony imaginations and dreams of, yes, the leaders that God had put into place. Notice verse 16. This is perhaps the, the, the fiercest indictment on these shepherds and prophets. For the ways in which they had totally bumbled and fumbled their calling. Notice. Thus says the Lord of hosts. Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you. Filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds. Not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually, to those who despise the word of the Lord, it shall be well with you. And to everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart, they say, no disaster shall come upon you. You see what they have done? They have twisted the words of God. To those who despise God's word, it'll be fine. It'll be okay. Just go your own way. It's fine. They've twisted God's word such that they are not prophesying anything. They're not preaching anything that comes from the mouth of the Lord. They're speaking out of their own imaginations, out of their own dreams, out of their own fancies, their own wisdom, such that the people are being filled, but they're being filled on meaninglessness. As he says, vain hopes. It's meaningless, it's empty. It has no substance, it has no filling. It's like if you were to just try to fill yourself on pixie sticks. It's not going to last. That sugary substance is not going to nourish you. It's flimsy, it's meaningless, it's empty, it's a vain source of food. And God here says, such is the message of these prophets. It's vain, it's empty, it's meaningless. And it's because they were speaking from their own imaginations, from their own wisdom. And not according to the words and wisdom of the Lord. And God has a word for that. He compares them later to straw or to chaff, if you're reading from the King James. Notice verse number 25. I have heard... God says. What the prophets have said. Actually, let's back up to verse 23. Because I just, I want to read this. Notice what he says. Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord. Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. Do you think I don't see what's going on in my own house? (laughs) He says, notice, I have heard what the prophets have said who prophesy lies in my name saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. How long shall there be lies in the heart of the prophets who prophesy lies and who prophesy the deceit of their own hearts. Who think to make my people forget my name by their dreams that they tell one another even as their fathers forgot my name for Baal. Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream. But let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. What has a straw has straw in common with wheat declares the Lord. Is not my word like fire declares the Lord like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. The point is. These prophets, these leaders, these shepherds who were supposed to lead God's people into nourishment, to be filled according to God's words, instead had punted on that obligation, that responsibility, and instead had led the people to become filled on nothing but straw. The straw-filled sermons of their own imaginations and wisdom and dreams. Which, as God here says, is is rubbish. It's, It's chaff. The husks that you, get, that you throw away, they have nothing nutritious about them. You would feed them to livestock, yes, perhaps, but you wouldn't try to fill yourself on them yourself. You can sense here, after all of this, that God is serious about this message, it pains his heart. Again, I think verse nine, or uh, yeah, verse nine, where, where Jeremiah confesses that he's reeling, he's staggering like a drunken man, is not just because he feels it, I think he feels it because God feels it. This is God's heart for His people being poured out. And yet for all of this worthlessness, this message that is woeful in God's eyes, that's leading people back into the wilderness. As he says in verse 32, I'm against them. I say all this to say this this morning. I was reading this whole chapter and I would say this, I think, is counsel that the church of today needs desperately. You know, there's if you don't know him, I think you probably should. His name is John Henry Jowett. He was a... British pastor and preacher at the turn of the century, late 1800s into the early 1900s. And some say, not Spurgeon or anyone like that, but some say that Jowett was, quote, the greatest preacher in the English-speaking world in his day. And perhaps you haven't heard any of his works. By the way, you can find them for free online. So if you just Google his name, go to Google Books, you can read his stuff online for free. It's pretty cool. In 1912, though, Jowett, this Orator, He was giving a series of lectures at the University of Yale on the ins and outs of what it means to be a pastor. In one of these lectures, he talks about preaching, and he has this to say. He says, quote, The pulpit may be the center of overwhelming power, and it may be the scene of tragic disaster. Which I think is a very, uh, very ominous word. Very serious word. But it is a word which I think accurately summarizes this whole text. As he says as Jeremiah through according to the word of the Lord. Is calling out shepherds and prophets. Those who were supposed to lead God's people. They were leading them instead into tragic disaster. In many ways I would say that the modern American church finds itself in a very similar position as here in Jeremiah 23, with churches being led by so-called pastors and preachers who aren't really pastoring, not really shepherding. They're actually leading their congregants away from God's truth, and instead they're filling them with their own opinions, with their own visions of their own minds, instead of God's word. The modern pulpit, I would say, indeed, just like Jowett warned, has become a scene of dreams and disasters. For example, I'm not going to give you names. You can try and do some Google research on your own. One preacher, preacher quote-unquote, recently delivered a sermon a couple months ago in which he claimed, and I hesitate to even report this, but he claimed that conditions such as autism and OCD and the like were merely the result of demonic, demonic possession. With the inference being that you could overcome them if you just said the right sort of exorcism or something like that. And the whole time he's preaching and he's appealing, the Bible says. And it makes me shudder because I think and I know he doesn't know what the Bible says at all if he thinks that. There was another so-called preacher who recently said, and I still don't know what this means so don't ask me. They said that Jesus, when he bent down to wash his apostles' feet in John chapter 12, that he, quote, transgendered himself when he did that. Which I don't know what that means, but I'm still confused as to what he was trying to say. But anyways, he he said that. Another preacher, you would know him if I gave his name, he said that it doesn't matter, quote, if the Bible is true, so long as it's mostly reliable. Which gives you a lot of... Hope and trust that he's preaching from the Bible. That's mostly reliable. Another pastor recently said. If you want to practice the gift of prophesying. But you aren't hearing from God. You're not hearing a prophecy. Just go ahead and make one up. And that's, that's God's word for you. Which if that isn't a direct fulfillment of Jeremiah 23. Where it says speaking visions from your own minds. I don't know what is. I share these things with you. Not just to... Maybe perhaps make you chuckle at some of the absurd things that pastors say. Although it's almost like depressingly funny. That leaders of God's people have been put into position. And this is how they're leading them. Nor, again, don't mistake me. I don't intend to prop myself up as if I'm a perfect preacher who preaches perfectly. Because I know that I'm not. But I share this with you for two reasons. Because I think... All of this, Jeremiah 23, recent preachers and their sermons, it leads me and it gets to the heart of my burden for preaching. But also I would say this burden of God for his people, for sinners as well. I've talked about this before. This is old hat perhaps for some of you here. Every time I walk into a pulpit with the opportunity to preach, I carry with me the same burden every single time every time I come up and it's actually something I preach about as uh, in my very first sermon here as your pastor three years ago in that sermon I said that if anyone came to church to hear me give tips and tricks on how to live a better life they would be sorely disappointed because and I believe this with all of my heart in fact it's If you want to try and pin me down on a hill I will die on. I believe that truthfully all scripture is pure Christ. And it's leading us to see him above all else. And if that is true and I believe in my gut that it is. Then it's the preacher's job I would say. It's his burden to magnify that object no matter where he is. Every chance he gets. That's what I take to be my job. It's not just to give you moral lessons. I could do that and you could benefit from it. But I want you to see that this is all leading to a person. It's leading to a figure. It's leading to the one who makes everything right. And his name is Jesus. Or as his name is is here, he is the righteous branch of Jehovah God. That's what I think my job is. If you want to know, is to open this book or open your phone if you have that too. And show you from text after text how all of this has been God's plan from the beginning. From before the foundation of the world. What had God purposed? He had purposed to reconcile to himself all things through the blood of his son. That's what he purposed. That's what he determined. And that's why you can get that amazingly great news that on the very same dirt where Adam and Eve committed sin, what did he promise them? That one day I will come and crush the head of the serpent. He promised them grace and forgiveness on the very spot where they committed iniquity and evil and shame and rebellion. Because it's in the heart of God to bring his people back. It's in the heart of God to save them. So every time I come up and preach, I pray to myself, God, let me forget everything but Christ and him crucified. And then I pray to get out of the way. Because I don't want the spotlight on me. I don't want to be seen because I'm not the point. That is. The cross is. I, I'm not the point. And I'm stubborn on that, I would say. I admit, I'm stubborn on that that whole thing. Because I'm mainly because I know I'm a sinner. And I don't need any other message other than knowing how me, a sinner, can be brought out of the depths of sin and into the glorious light of God's righteousness. That's the message I need. And I would wager to say that you need that too. I, I think a lot of times, and this is really confessional, I am sorry. <laughs> A lot of times this platform can be treated or platforms all over the country can be treated like a pastor's personal soapbox where they can spout off opinions and imaginations and dreams and preferences. But what good would that really do? What good would that do for your soul? What good are my words compared to God's which you have right in front of you? Or even as God says here, to these very prophets who are leading God's people away, what good or what has in common straw with wheat? Or to put it in the modern vernacular, what can a peanut compare to a dry-aged porterhouse steak? (laughs) Nothing. You can't compare the two. I I remember the very first time I ate at Texas Roadhouse. Because it made an impression on me. And you imagine you perhaps know where I'm going with this. I was probably five to seven years old. And I was just absolutely fascinated with this idea that it didn't matter what you did with your peanut shells. You could just throw them on the ground. It was awesome. It was so cool to me. You can just pop them open, eat the peanut, and all sense of decorum. You know, you've been brought up by your parents all of your life to throw things away and to just be neat and clean and tidy and ordinary and and orderly and stuff. Except when it came to peanuts at Texas Roadhouse. (laughs) There was this safe space secluded for those who could just throw things on the ground. There's something entertaining about that. But imagine, imagine... Imagine if I was going to Texas Roadhouse and all I did was spend my time eating peanuts. Or just use this idea imagine if I just spent my time de shelling and de skinning the peanut and then just making a little pile of peanuts, but never actually eating the nut itself. That would, be, that would be kind of insane. You would question my sanity. But even still, even further, that serves no benefit. But imagine if all I ever did was go to Texas Roadhouse for the peanuts. That I never sat down to eat a steak. You would still perhaps call me insane. And question my sanity. (laughs) That's silly. But that's exactly what God says. Preachers do. When they fail to exalt me. Instead. They go off and they preach their own messages, they preach their own opinions, they preach their own visions, they preach their own dreams. And instead of going to God's word and saying, thus saith the Lord, they say, I have a dream, I have a dream, listen to my visions and my imagined words. God says that's peanuts. Indeed, I would confess to you this morning, my words are peanuts compared to the porterhouse of God's word. And I should never be satisfied with anything less. If all I ever did was offer you my opinions about some such scandal, some such news headline, that would be about as profitable and beneficial to you as peanuts on the floor. It doesn't nourish you. It doesn't lift up your soul. It doesn't feed you. It doesn't fill you. Instead, it leaves you empty, filled with vain hopes and loosely connected, imagined dreams. That's God's word to every single person who's been given God's word to declare. Again, notice verse 30 back in our text. Notice how many times God says he's against these prophets. Therefore, behold, I am against the prophets, declares the Lord, who steal my words from one another. Behold, I'm against the prophets, declares the Lord, who use their tongues and declare, declares the Lord. Behold, I'm against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord. And who tell them and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness. When I did not send them or charge them, so they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. He says he's against those who think they can fill my flock with sermons of straw. I'm against that. You see, I take the burden of preaching very seriously. Very seriously. Because I think God does too. Why else do you think there's a whole book, a book that you would... Probably skip over in your Bible reading. uh, Dedicated to detailing all the meticulous ways he wants to be worshipped. Otherwise known as Leviticus. (laughs) He takes all of that time detailing the ways in which he is worshipped. And in which worship is to be properly done. Why else do you think he would give that to us if he is not serious about the ways in which we worship him? I think because he is very certain. Very concerned With the ways in which we conduct ourselves in his house. Such that here he is distraught. That his people have been led astray. By these dreams and these fancies. It's leading his people into disaster. And yet despite all of that. Go back to the beginning of Jeremiah 23. Because notice what he purposes to do. Yes, even to these, uh, this bunch of shepherds and prophets who are leading God's people astray. Leading them out, perhaps we could say, into uh, scorched earth. Notice what God says. He says, woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel concerning the shepherds who care, quote unquote, for my people. You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. He says here, he's taking note. He's taking note of all of the ways that they have failed to attend to a sheep. Because he's attending to it. He's noticing, he's seeing, he's got it checked off. And he promises to hold them accountable for it. For the ways in which they have failed in their calling from God himself. But then notice he promises this amazing promise in verse 3. Then I. I will do it God says. I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them. And I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. He promises they're going to be regathered. Every far off sheep that's been lost will be brought back into his fold. And there that amazing promise that they will be fruitful and multiply. Which makes, should make you think of Adam. And it should make you think of all those covenant promises of God. It, it makes us believe that all of those, those ruins and desolate places will become abundant with life again. God's going to do it, he says. I will gather my people. And notice verse 4. He says, I will set shepherds over them who will care for them. Shepherds who actually shepherd. And they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Missing. None of them is going to be left unattended. None of them is going to be left unnumbered. Why? Why? Because there is this one who is going to come after every single lost sheep. And he's going to number them. He's going to find them. And he's going to bring them back. All of that and more is going to be accomplished by one individual. And his name is the righteous branch of Jehovah. Notice verse 5. Behold, these days are coming, declares the Lord. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name of, by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That branch is nothing but, a, we could say, a divine nickname for our Savior, Jesus Christ. The one who we know from John 10 and all over the Bible who is and he comes as the true and better shepherd. The good shepherd as Jesus himself says who gives his life for his sheep. Unlike these woeful shepherds who won't even lift a finger to care for God's flock. This shepherd comes and dies for them because he cares for them so much. He doesn't want them to be lost. He doesn't want them to be unnumbered. He comes and seeks them out and brings them back and saves them. Because he is the shepherd through whom all of these woes and wrongs will be made right. In him and by him and through him. And this, my friends, this is the church's message. The message that we stand on. The message that, yes, I would even say that we can die for if need be. That God sent his only son into this world to remake it through his own blood. And that by dying, it sounds, that we talked about this last Sunday night, it sounds like folly. It sounds like foolishness that this one who died is actually the king of all things. And he's remaking the world through his death. But praise be to God, the wisdom of man is nothing compared to the wisdom of God. And in fact, as we read, I don't mean to re-preach that, but the wisdom of God sometimes sounds like folly. Sounds like what? Sounds like a joke. Yeah, God says, that's my gospel. That I am the one who's going to come and regather all of my lost sheep Preaching that saves souls. It's not Nutra-Sweet. It's not a sugary pixie stick. It's not a peanut shell. It is the rich nourishment of God's word. And I think every sermon, every Bible lesson, every Sunday school hour ought to draw attention to the one who is our righteousness, the Lord himself. That's our burden. Our burden. As people... Yes, Pastor Nathan and I, we have been given the express calling to open this word and deliver it on a regular basis. If you're an elder, perhaps you have other opportunities, perhaps more than others. But each and every single one of you here this morning, you are a preacher. You're an evangelist. To those who are around you, your family, your co-workers, your friends, your classmates. You're an evangelist to every single one. And the only message that's going to reach their soul is the message of the Savior. This message of this righteous branch who is coming to remake the world. That's our burden. It's a burden that I gladly carry. Because you see, I think saying that all scripture is pure Christ... It's not a passing fad. It's not a gimmick. It's not something that I say just because I want to sound smart. I say it because I think it's true. I say it because I think all of this is tending towards one thing. The savior of sinners. Because sinners are all that there are. That message, I would say, is the lifeblood of this church. And I would say it ought to be the lifeblood of every sinner saved by grace. Why settle for anything less, my friends? Why settle for peanuts when a porterhouse is sitting for you on the table? My prayer for this church, for however many decades God gives me life, is that these halls will reverberate with the message that the Son of God has come down and borne the penalty of your sin on his own shoulders. And he died for it, and he paid for it by his own blood. That's the message that saves sinners and that changes the world. It's not dreamy. It's not imagined. It's real. It's as real as the blood of Jesus that spilled and mixed with Jewish mud. That's how real it is. That's how real your savior is. That's how real your hope is. Because guess what? Your Savior's not dead. He didn't stay in that tomb. You can go there, and you can go to however many tombs that they have identified as the tomb of Jesus. Each one's going to be empty. Each one is going to be just a cold, dank, damp tomb, no bones rotting away. Because our hope is alive. 1 Peter 1.3, we have a living hope. That's something I think that you can sink your teeth into. Let us pray.